Listener Production. Hey, Tom Tilly with you. In this episode of The Briefing, what happens when a country starts shrinking? So South Korea has the lowest fertility rate in the world, where the average number of babies per woman is now 0.78. Now, if this trend continues, South Korea's population will fall by a third by 2070, and that's going to cause all kinds of economic and social problems. I think South Korea is in real trouble because it's never been prepared to address its patriarchal structure. You know, it's deeply patriarchal structure. Yeah, so it's a really interesting situation in South Korea. We'll be asking, could we face the same problem here, especially given we have an ageing population? Are we in danger of shrinking too? And what can we learn from South Korea where there is a massive gender equality problem? That is in the second half of the episode. First, headlines with Antoinette Latouf. It's Wednesday, March 8th which is International Women's Day. Well, we knew it was coming, but it doesn't mean it's not going to hurt any less. The Reserve Bank has locked in a 10th consecutive rate rise as it tries to keep inflation in check. So the cash rate is now sitting at 3.6% following yesterday's quarter of a percent increase. This will make life harder for many Australians who are already under the pump. Uh, This was expected, it was flagged, the markets anticipated it, but it will still sting. Treasurer Jim Chalmers there. Yeah, so the real focus now is on how many more of these painful rate rises Mm. there will be. And to work that out, the experts pour over the one-page statement that comes out with the decision. So now there's a glimmer of hope there might only be one more increase after this, Mm. where a lot of people had been expecting there could be more. And so the reason for that hope is in the statement. So last month's statement um, said there will be further increases in interest rates. Yesterday's statement took out that phrase, further increases, and said further tightening of monetary policy. So that leaves it more open Mm. and that this period of high inflation is only temporary. And it also said for the first time yesterday that inflation has peaked. So that's why there's Mm. hope there might only be one more after this rather than two or three. Yeah, I think we're finally seeing signs that people are slowing down their spending. They had a whole pot of savings because of COVID. Um, And at the moment, jobs are not growing at the same rate. As I understand it, Tom, around the middle of the year, more people will start to really feel the pinch as a whole bunch are expected to come off fixed interest rates. But I heard one economist say yesterday, it is a good time to be in the business of lipstick and boxes of chocolate as people look for small luxuries uh, <laughs> because they can't spend big on holidays um, and other things. And a preliminary report into the deadly midair collision between two helicopters on the Gold Coast has been released. Four people were killed in the SeaWorld tragedy in January, nine were injured. So the report says that one pilot didn't hear a radio call made by the other pilot who was about to tank off. And the report also said the pilots might not have been able to see each other. So it's still going to take two years Mm. for the full report. And that poor little boy, that 10-year-old boy who lost his mum, he's still in hospital. Um, And I think the the latest is that he needs to have part of his right leg amputated. And there's an update on our briefing on soft plastics in yesterday's episode. So yesterday, the big three supermarkets, Aldi, Coles and Woolworths, released a roadmap to restart recycling of soft plastic. And a pilot operation will start before the end of the year with the aim of a nationwide rollout next year. We've got technology that will be able to absorb a lot of that material over the number of years coming forward, but it's just a slow process. We've got to get the equipment over from overseas to, to get it running. 
Darren Thorpe there from APR Plastics. And as we discussed yesterday, they'll first need to clear the 12,000 tonnes worth of stockpiled plastics from the failed Red Cycle program. And a Hobart man previously convicted of the abuse of former Australian of the Year Grace Tame has pleaded not guilty to harassing her via social media. So Nicholas Okert Bester is alleged to have made public posts on Twitter in relation to and directed at Tame and is facing three charges. His case will be heard in April. The former school teacher was convicted in 2011 and sentenced to two years and 10 months jail for abusing Tame when she was a student at his school. So you may remember Tame was instrumental in a campaign that resulted in 2020 law changes in her home state, Tasmania, allowing survivors to share their stories publicly because until then, a perpetrator of an assault was able to talk about the case, but not the victim. Mm. And that was designed to protect child abuse victims, but it ended up restricting them. And Grace Tame, yeah, as you say, uh, along with a, a lot of other young women, worked to overturn that law and she made a massive impact. In Britain, they're introducing Australian-style laws to stop asylum seekers arriving by boat. So the legislation, which is very similar to our turnback policy, would prevent them from claiming asylum and would either turn them around or deport them to what they're calling a safe third country. Around 45,000 asylum seekers crossed the English Channel last year, and that's up from just 300 in 2018 before Brexit. Yeah, so 45,000 asylum seekers, they're going for um, a very tough solution. And yeah, looking to us as an example, because um, we had thousands of boats arriving as well um, up until we reinstated the turnback policy, which was very controversial here in Australia. But As the coalition argued, it did stop the deaths at sea, but it um, also resulted in people being locked up for eight, nine years Mm. in detention. Yeah, and Australia is the only other country in the world to have this kind of policy. And Conservative UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak was actually advised by former foreign minister under John Howard, Alexander Downer, about this policy. Um, And so we've pushed back around 800 people and dozens of vessels um, since that 2013 policy. I mean, it is described by the UN as cruel and deadly um, and that they argue militarising borders contributes to more deaths, not saving lives, and point out that historically around 70% of asylum seekers arriving in Australia by boat have been found to be refugees. And to mark International Women's Day, the first ever bronze statues of female politicians will be unveiled in Canberra today. So this is a bit of a sad state of affairs. We have a statue of a Kelpie at Parliament in Canberra, but none of any women until today. It's wild. And my reaction is to laugh, even though it's it's no, it's no laughing matter. But... Um, We also don't have any statues of um, Indigenous people, but today the statues uh, will be of Dame Enid Lyons and Dame Dorothy Tagney, who both walked through the doors of Parliament 80 years ago, Lyons for what became the Liberal Party, and Tagney from Labor. Yeah, and they're really awesome statues, so that'll be a proud moment. And um, I imagine there'll be many more to come. Hopefully. Maybe Julia Gillard will be the next one as the first female prime minister. Yeah, that would make sense. And, you know, a question, Tom, that always gets banded around on International Women's Day is what about men? What about International Men's Day? And there is, guys, um, November 19. People don't really talk about it much, though, do they? They do. I still get asked, what about International Men's Day? Like, maybe maybe not in your circles, but I reckon, you know, 
people still get a little bit defensive and wonder why we need the day. All right, Antoinette, we'll catch you later. Jan Fran's about to join me as we look at what's going with South Korea's birth rate. So, Jan Fran, like um, almost everyone on the briefing, you've had a baby. Uh, We've had a baby as well. But if we stop at just one, we're heading for a serious problem like South Korea is. Yeah. Well, I mean, the briefing is a particular ecosystem, right? I think it just, it breeds children. But I don't know about you, Tom. One feels like a good amount for me and two would definitely be the top end of the amount of children I'm prepared to have. And I think that that's a trend generally in Australia around the number of babies women are choosing to have. Slightly heading downwards, not as downwards as you say, as what it's heading in South Korea, where it is sharp. Yeah. So each woman there is having uh, less than one child. Here we're averaging at 1.6, so between one and two, as you're saying there. Um, But they're at 0.78, the lowest birth rate in the world. Yeah, they broke their own record, actually, uh, just last month. So why are the fertility rates so low? And moreover, why is that a problem? Well, Ruth Phillips is an Associate Professor in Policy Studies at the University of Sydney. Um, She's previously written a book that sort of looks a little bit at this issue, compares Australia and South Korea's demographics. Ruth, thanks for joining us. When did South Korea's population and birth rate start going backwards? Well, I guess it's been a gradual thing, but... If you, I think you have to look at Korea, South Korea historically to answer why. Probably their fertility rate has been quite low for the last 10, 15, 20 years, really, comparatively to other countries. So it's been a gradual reduction. Um, and if you ask me why, uh, you have to remember that South Korea was a military government until the early 90s, they really had the only, that was the beginning of democratic elections. And that's an important context for women in Korea because during the period in other countries that the women's movement was making real inroads into gender equality, women activists and just about everyone who was actively involved in the democracy movement and that took away from developments, I think, in gender equality. So as well as having the lowest fertility rate, South Korea also has the worst gender equality in relation to work and programs that support women. So they go hand in hand. So when you say that the fertility rate is linked to gender equality, can you talk us through that a little bit more? What is it about gender equality or inequality in South Korea that has had an impact on these fertility rates and how is it different from other countries, like Australia, for example? Well, Australia in the 1970s went through a, a social democratic government where women's, the feminist agenda was part of the government's agenda. So there were lots of changes made in terms of sex discrimination, uh, equal access to education, etc. And But in South Korea, they were in the midst of their military regime during that entire period. So there's been no groundwork for really addressing the social inequality of women as well. Korea has the worst... Um, 
wage disparity of any OECD country. Women only earn 67.7% of what men earn for the same work. The other really key indicator of gender inequality is the lack of women in in government, in executive positions. And we've seen this shift where there's been no consistent development for gender equality. And most recently in 2022, the government uh, changed to a very conservative government and the whole election campaign was riddled with anti-feminist sentiments, like literally. And a lot of young men were claiming that women, they're being discriminated against because women have been given all these opportunities through gender equality. For women who are really encouraged to be in the workforce, there's no real incentives for them to take time out and have babies in terms of the workplace they go back to. So there's a whole cultural failure, if you like, for women to feel that they can shift out of the workforce and also, frankly, um, in a society that doesn't regard women very highly, they're choosing not to even to get married. Why does the correlation work this way, that the more backwards a country is in, in gender equality, the lower the birth rate? A common sense read might say, oh, well, if there's fewer opportunities and, and worse pay for women in the workforce, then they might be likely to have more babies, you know, often in less developed countries, that's the case. So what is the causation of these dynamics? The really big factor, I think, is that in in South Korea, you know, it was basically a feudal economy in the 1950s and it's gone through this extremely rapid uh, industrialization and economic growth. And part of that sort of dominant neoliberal framework is that everyone should be an economic citizen. So women as well got greater access to education and professional skills. So they became job ready as part of this uh, sort of productivist approach to everyone. Everyone should be working. And that was really successful. In And so women feel that they have as much right to be in the workforce as anyone else. It seems that policymakers in in South Korea and in other countries around the world, Japan is another example of this. It's got a low birth rate, although not as low as South Korea. It seems that policymakers are sort of scrambling because they fear that there is this demographic crisis approaching on the horizon. What are some of the kind of consequences of having a low fertility rate like they do in South Korea? What's the problem with it? Well, the big problem is it's uh, added to an ageing population. So as it's been reported, um, more people are dying at the other end than babies being born. So you have this sort of inverse proportion of dependency, if you like, with an older population and less people in the future to look after them or work to pay taxes to look after them. And that's a generalised consequence of ageing populations. But when it's this extreme, it's going to happen much more rapidly that there will be no one either working to pay for taxes to support the broadening age population or to actually care for them. One of the policy responses is to increase migration. But if you don't migrate people who have babies, you don't actually address that problem. 
Right. So migration is just a Band-Aid solution because it's usually adults migrating and they're not necessarily bringing children unless they're, as you say, the kinds of people that are likely to have more children when they come. Yeah, straight away. (laughs) I've got quite a few friends, women who are, are Korean from Korea and none of them are still in relationships because the more they progress as academics, for example, the less likely their partner is to stay with them. It's a really interesting cultural thing that is still very prevalent in Japan and and South Korea. In Australia, we know that women, um, you know, there's still discrimination, but not as much. And the other factor that's really interesting is workplace harassment for women is extremely high in Korea and there are no laws against it. There are have been approaches by the government to come up with schemes, but there's no consequences if you don't comply. So women are treated badly in the workplace as well because of that inherent sexism in the entire culture. When comparing Australia with South Korea, obviously there are some very fundamental differences, but there are quite a lot of similarities. I mean, we have a declining fertility rate. We have an ageing population. We might not have some of the gender equalities in the same rate or at the same level that may exist in South Korea, but certainly they exist here as well. Are we headed for the same sorts of troubles that South Korea might be facing in regards to low fertility and the consequences of it? Uh, well, I think there are more uh, more men are getting involved in parenting in Australia. I mean, I know it's a slow transformation, but more men are taking up parental leave opportunities. And I think that trend amongst younger people um, to be more actively involved in parenting is probably a really big difference. The other thing is that we have maternity leave or parental leave laws now that are required. So that's another big issue, that opportunity to take time out. I think that um, we also have a fairly good uh, response in the workplace of women coming back to the same or improved levels of responsibility in their workplace. So I think Australia uh, certainly has an issue um, because of the ageing population, but it's all about the other end, you know, it's about supporting gender equality in terms of things like parenting, which makes it easier for people to make choices to have children. So it really has to be about facilitating women to make that choice to to have the baby in a relationship that's supportive. I think that's the kind of fundamental key issue. That was Ruth Phillips from the University of Sydney, and she's written a book called Generational Change in New Policy Directions, Australia and South Korea. And yeah, really interesting to hear those dynamics in South Korea, Jan, that women not being supported in the workplace and also not supported on the home front is a big driver in these low birth rates. It feels like I kind of want to say, uh, duh. You know, working super hard and having children uh, is a difficult thing. But it's interesting what she was saying about men doing more of the uh, unpaid labour or more of the childminding or childcare here in Australia compared to South Korea. And that being one of the factors that has meant that our fertility rates are not as low. Yeah, it seems that if we want to... Well, I mean, according to Ruth anyway, that if we want to keep fertility rates 
at that level or increase them, men got to do more work. Yeah, and I guess there's been a lot of progress made, but there's more to be made. And also interesting that, you know, immigration is not uh, the perfect solution for it either. So to continue at our population levels, these are really important considerations. Listener.